The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today is a remarkable person, someone I've really come to admire, Jeff Rowe, the founder and CEO of Axiom Strategies, a firm specializing in strategic consulting, direct voter contact, and research services for congressional, senatorial, and statewide campaigns. Axiom was founded in Kansas City, Missouri in 2005. Jeff is best known for his data-driven approach to politics, as well as his role as a senior strategist and campaign manager for Ted Cruz's 2016 run for president. He formerly served as chief of staff, campaign manager, and aide to Representative Sam Graves. Axiom has helped elect 74 congressmen, eight senators, six governors. His latest victory includes the election of Glenn Youngkin for governor of Virginia. And I have to say that I talked with Jeff off and on all through the campaign. I watched how they worked, how they evolved, and it was extraordinarily impressive. And we had a perfect combination of a really, really smart candidate and a really, really smart advisor. And the two of them changed history in ways we're going to explore in this podcast. Jeff. Thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Before we dive into the Young and McCauley phrase, as you remember when we first started chatting, I'm intrigued with your whole background because it's fascinating. How did you get into politics? My congressman at the time growing up, Tom Coleman, in Missouri's 6th Congressional District, 
afforded me a nomination to a military academy and I joined the military at 17 and had gone to Fort Sill, Oklahoma to be a 13 Bravo cannon cocker. And I'd met him during the process of getting a nomination to go to West Point. And so my grandmother was from, we're all from Lynn County, Brookfield, Missouri. And we, our family raised Chester White hogs. Politics was the only thing dirtier that I could find than raising hogs. And so she was a Republican Women's Central Committee member. And she took me to fundraisers as early as I can remember. And she always preached to me the, the principles of being involved in politics day to day. And then I got to meet politicians kind of growing up and completed my service, went overseas for a few months and came back and finished up school at a small school in Northwest Missouri and jumped in and started working on campaigns every other semester in school. And I had the good fortune of graduating in an election year, one that you, I don't know, you may remember, 1994. We won that year. Sam Graves and I, he was running for state senate at the time, and we literally broke the tape flying upside down. We listened to it so often in the car that we eventually broke it. But we won that year. We thought we were geniuses, but we then realized everybody won that year because of the contract with America. And I went to Jefferson City, Missouri as a legislative aide. And then he ran for Congress in 2000. And we won what at that time was one of the number one races in the country. And I went to D.C. in 2000 and then left D.C. in 2005 and started my consulting company. But in between, you also, if I remember correctly, you helped the Missouri Republicans win the General Assembly for the first time in 50 years. We did. Sam's ascension to Congress left his seat open, and a lieutenant governor in a neighboring district was a Democrat. had left that seat open, and so I ran both races, and we won. We swept both of them in 2001, and that brought us into the Senate majority for the first time. And then in 2002, we were able to take the House majority for the first time and inaugurated Catherine Hannaway as the House Speaker for the first time in half a century and really ushered in a new majority, which has become, you know, at least to this day, a permanent majority for Republicans in Missouri. So you decided in 2005 to found Axiom Strategies, which has become really a remarkable company. Tell us what your thinking was when you created Axiom and the fact that you based it in Kansas City. Well, two things. Nobody in my family had ever really had their own company, but I was giving a speech on Sam's behalf at a railroad crossing, an at-grade crossing, and he'd gotten some money for the at-grade signals to come down. And my speaking slot was 215 to 219. And I get up to read the letter from Sam bestowing the money that Kid Bond and he had acquired and at 2.15, the train came barreling through. And I got done reading my letter, and I walked off the stage, and I went over to the host, and I said, do I need to read that again? Because I don't think they heard it because the train was crossing through. And she said, no, you were right on time. And so I thought, probably anybody could do this job. And I called Sam on the way home, and I said, I think we probably need to make a change. I should probably do campaigns, which is what I love to do, and I can still be part of your effort. So that day I wrote my resignation letter and I posted it 90 days and filled my slot and started my company. And 95% of my clients were within 90 miles and just tried to make a go of it. A lot of close friends of mine have been successful in business, so I eventually wrote a business plan. And the business plan was to elect congressmen. 
I had helped just on the edges of Sam's race and a couple other races. So I had three congressmen going into it. And my business model called for me to help to elect 20. I thought that I really would have made it at that point. And so we've just focused on that and we built out just really kind of the Big 12, if you will, football. The Big 12 conference was where our focus was. And now we go coast to coast and now we have 417 employees. Not that I have to count once a month or anything, but we've built up quite a shop and have elected a lot of folks and have been blessed to not only do those, but then those folks run for Senate and run for governor and have built out quite an operation out of that. But the focus was to run a campaign that's based on data first, analytics and branding and narrative and try to control the narrative of a campaign. A lot of times you'll wake up on election day thinking, how do we end up debating these topics when this is not why we got in the race? This is not what the campaign should have been about. And a lot of times just the ebb and the flow of a campaign will drift you way off course. And so we built an agency that really handles a lot of the different features of a campaign to try and control the narrative and keep our candidates in charge of their own message instead of handing it off to the national press or handing it off to the whims of the electorate at that moment. Kansas City was kind of a big town for me growing up. It was about an hour and a half away from my hometown. And it was in Sam's congressional district where I was chief of staff. So when I would come back to Missouri, I'd typically come back to Kansas City. I bought a home in precinct number 11 in Liberty, Missouri. Liberty, Missouri was the swing city within Clay County, which is a swing county in the swing district, which is a sixth district in the swing state in those days of Missouri. And so I found a house in the swing precinct, in the swing city, in the swing county, in the swing district of Missouri. And I bought a house there. And so set up shop there. And I just wanted to really kind of live among swing voters, if you can imagine that. Now I try to avoid swing voters as much as I can. But that's how I ended up in Kansas City, and it was a really good launching place for that. For founding the company in 2005, you pretty rapidly found yourself in the 2008 presidential effort with Mike Huckabee. How did you end up with Mike? As a firm, we hosted every presidential candidate that would come to Kansas City, and we would raise them $50,000 from our kind of friends and family. And... I just remember we had Giuliani through and Fred Thompson through, Romney, everybody. And I met Mike Huckabee and it just stuck. I still love Mike Huckabee. And he was a very gracious guy and Sarah, his daughter, and David, his son, and the whole family was involved. And so we really hit it off and I decided that day we came back afterwards and I'll just never forget that event. He knew every single waiter. He knew the cashier. He knew their name and something about them. And there was just something kind of magical about Mike. And so we decided the next day we were going to go work for him. We didn't know what exactly that meant, except that it was probably going to be that we'd have to do it for free. But Iowa was close by. And so myself and several folks on our team went to work for Mike the next day. And it wasn't long after that fundraiser that he started to become ascendant in the polls due to his performance in the debates and he was pretty good with one-liners and he and Romney were really battling. We kind of relocated Axiom's main office and went to Iowa and worked pretty hard for Mike and fortunate enough to win and then I drove overnight, left Des Moines that night and drove straight to South Carolina and another person and I who now works with me set up shop in South Carolina and then we did essentially the SEC states. We went down from there to Florida and our state chairman 
A young fellow by the name of Marco Rubio was our state chairman. He found this office location. We set up in Florida to battle there, and we ended up seeding the campaign and in Texas. So we got quite a run with Mike. So were you surprised by McCain's ability to make a comeback after he seemed like he was out of the race? Yeah, in fact, we saw Fred Thompson really help. Fred Thompson stayed in the race. Really, Fred Thompson retrenched after his loss to Tennessee. Everybody went to New Hampshire. Obviously, Mike didn't have much of an opportunity in New Hampshire, but we set up the fight in South Carolina. And Fred stayed in for his good friend McCain to help siphon votes away from us in South Carolina. A real turning point in the race. I remember on election night, it was really close. It was snowing up in the north and it was only raining down in Charleston and so McCain had enough votes and Thompson pulled just enough from us to put McCain back in the lead and win the state and that was kind of the rebirth of McCain and Thompson. They had their victory parties that night together. It was a good move on their part to do that and so after that and momentum's everything as you know in presidential politics and we'd lost the big mo. South Carolina we had to win And after that, we would have a moment or two left in the campaign. But after you lose momentum in a campaign, it's tough to get it back. Well, I learned a fair amount of that in the 2012 cycle when you and I did a little bit of work together. And you had first been a consultant to Rick Perry, who I admire enormously. I think he's one of the most decent and remarkable people in American government and politics. When he dropped out, he endorsed me, which I was very grateful for. And you ended up helping us. And that's when I learned the power of sheer money. Florida against Romney, given the scale of Romney's resources, we just couldn't make it. It was fascinating. As you think back to 12, what are your lessons learned that you took on into other campaigns? The lessons in 2012 is that, first of all, the ground game of a campaign and your investment in field is very valuable, but it's valuable up to a point. It's about a field goal, if you will. It's worth about three points in politics, and three points a lot of times can win a game. But without the money to get you up to within the field goal, it's just a very difficult thing to overcome, particularly in big states. In the old days, which is in 12, there were certain states that you could network politically, and there's other states that you just have to buy the airtime. And I would think a lot of times in the Perry campaign, we would mix and match the wrong way. We would try and buy New Hampshire airtime instead of networking that state. We try and buy South Carolina instead of working it. Now everybody works Iowa because you have a year to build the infrastructure. But then you get in those states which are just completely momentum states. And when you put your streak of states together, you would have no advertising sometimes and you would just win on straight momentum, which is great. But you can't sustain that without money. And the ability to build a campaign that can sustain itself, save the money. And this is a presidential level. This doesn't speak to outside of presidential. But when you have momentum in a presidential campaign to save your resources and invest in ground so that when that momentum dissipates, you can still carry on that momentum a bit with paid and with field, that's a really critical exercise. And you know, you go from five staff kind of staring at each other in a rented office space somewhere to 150 people and huge overhead and all kinds of money flying in the door. And then for it to start to taper off and how you manage those resources, that was a lesson I learned in eight when Huckabee got hot and then we lost it and how fast that dries up. I learned it in 12 when Rick's 
had his moment, and then he said, hey, guys, everybody ought to go to Newt. That's our chance to beat Romney, frankly. And then I learned the same lesson with Cruz in 16. When we got hot, we raised $93 million more than anyone had ever raised for a primary, and then we started to falter, and the money just immediately dried up, and I'd rerun all those races and do it a different way. But the allocation of resources, when to scale, I'll never forget Rick Perry in 16 let go seven staffers in Iowa. He had 10. He went down to three. And I remember calling our Iowa guy and I said, you know how many people we have up there working with you, right? And he said, yeah, it's just me. And I said, yeah, that's the lesson here. We need to stay small as long as we possibly can to eventually let our operation catch up to the calendar. And Rick started out with 10 and he was blowing and going and then he had to let him go because the money just wasn't there. At least to my knowledge, no one's ever managed a campaign over $20 million for president twice. If I do it again, I'll learn a lot more doing it a second time because the management of resources and when to kind of push the accelerator, when to let off, those are lessons that it's just hard to learn without making the mistake. Ted was the last viable candidate faced with Trump. And Ted's one of the smartest guys in the Senate. Somebody I admire a lot. He has a lot of courage. But it strikes me that in the end, there was a momentum to Trump and a sort of personal scale. There wasn't a money scale. It was all the different components that made up Trump that was just almost impossible to stop. I mean, as you look back, and again, I think you guys ran a great campaign, and certainly in Iowa, you did a remarkable job. And Ted did a good job in the debates. I mean, he's one of the two smartest guys on the stage. Yeah, I think we measure it now in, and there's a new science every year. We'll have new science, and in 24, there'll be another science that we'll be able to measure. But You know, we used to measure endorsements and that sort of thing and billionaires that funded super PACs and all that. Now it's a small dollar game, but it's also earned media share. And the earned media share has almost always predicted presidential winners in primaries and generals, frankly. But the earned media share that Donald Trump was able to get in the primary was just an overwhelming powerful tool. And we were not ever interesting enough to gather that. We'd always complain about it, but the fact of the matter is Donald Trump was, anytime we would get on a roll, we won five states in a row. Obviously, we won Iowa and and had some successes in the SEC primary states. But it was never a big enough moment that he wouldn't change the topic the next day. And regardless of how he would change it, he would be able to control the media in a way that would dominate the coverage for days. And sometimes recklessly change it. But even the old saying, just spell my name right, he would control the media narrative day after day after day. And if we were winning conventions, they were rigged, and then all the conversation would be, how rigged were they? Were they really rigged? He's a force of nature, particularly as it relates to earned media coverage, and it was a tsunami. I remember we won Wisconsin. Ted gave his best election night speech. You know, candidates get pretty hyped up after they win. They speak for too long. They do all their thank yous at the beginning instead at the end. And at some point, the press just stops covering them. They lose their message. But Ted gave a great speech in Wisconsin. We get back on the bus. We have Fox News on. And we immediately go to the big board to show how Trump's going to win the next five states. <laughs> and it was like it just didn't even happen. And so there's this force at work. And Trump was an overwhelming presence. There 
There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Now, in the middle of all this, while you're doing these campaigns... You're also growing Axiom, which I have to express my own ignorance. Axiom has helped elect 74 congressmen, eight senators, six governors. You do political and ballot initiative campaigns. You provide crisis management and consulting to eight Fortune 500 companies and over 20 public corporations on federal, state, and local issues. I mean, that is a heck of a machine that all grew out of your founding it in Kansas City. It's hard to believe, isn't it? What was the key to that? I mean, why is Axiom such a juggernaut? I think the longevity of our employees, probably. We get to work on a lot of big campaigns. And when we see folks that kind of ascribe to our philosophy of politics and enjoy working together and people come here and as we talk about a lot, we want people to retire with our company. We're trying to build a hundred year company and we want to have a philosophy that I want people's kids to work here and their grandkids to work here if they're competent and able. I think the business of politics is changing to a degree as well. I think that if you're a small shop in politics, it's kind of hard to make it. To get to scale in politics and have highly compensated and highly trained people, you have to be at a certain size. We got there just by not spending a bunch of money and saving it cycle over cycle and not getting a bunch of offices and not spending a bunch of money frivolously. And Missy and I don't need a bunch. I mean, we certainly don't don't live too shabby, but we reinvest in the company a lot. And I'd have the same story every entrepreneur has and didn't take any money out for the first couple of years and all that sort of thing. But now that we've built it to scale, now people are attracted to come here because they can work on campaigns that they could never work on on their own. 
And if always happens, it's a good client comes in, they have a great opportunity, they're gonna raise a bunch of money, it's a big race, and they just don't run. Eventually they drop out or something happens. And that kills a lot of firms. If you have a big kind of anchor client, they don't run or something happens, or they redistrict them out, or that kills companies. And for us, we have enough big clients and enough kind of going that we have enough talented people that we just keep marching on. And so we've also focused our company on general consultants. A lot of people sell television advertising or digital advertising or direct mail, or they have a product offering. And that's great. We do a lot of those things. We sell those product offerings too, but the bones of our company are people that can actually manage a campaign. They can run it and put the pieces together and they can build the infrastructure for a candidate. So when they come in, a lot of times don't care who does the mail piece or who does the different pieces of the process or who sends the text messages or whatever. They care about who intellectually is on the lead lap with them about what they want to accomplish or what the campaign's about and they can help execute all the different features. So when they say they want something done, they don't have to listen to a voice on a conference call. They know their person. And we have 24 people like that now across the country that they trust to be able to get that done and they're valued partner in the campaign effort. And I think that's the strength of our firm is this is not me. We have really talented people running big scale campaigns now and they're attracted to come here so they can work on campaigns that otherwise it would almost be hard for the, either them to handle on their own or that if they lost a race, they'd really feel it you know, the next day in their own company. You have the system working very well. And then you tackle the highest profile race of 2021. And it's initially, I think, realistically a long shot because you got to get through a convention which normally favors the traditional insiders. This is at least my sense. I could be wrong. And you've got a genuine outsider who is learning politics every single day. What attracted you to Glenn? We met before the 20 cycle was over. A mutual friend of ours had met him and said, you're going to love this guy. You got to meet him. I think at that point, I don't recall, he had interviewed a lot of people and he eventually talked to everybody in the business, I feel like. But Larry Hogan had given him some advice that a lot of the folks in Virginia had just gotten used to losing and did not hire the consultant class from Virginia. That helped me a lot because a lot of my competitors are in Virginia. So that wiped a whole bunch of people out. So that was helpful. But I met him and I could tell, first of all, that he just wasn't a typical business guy that wanted to go throw their hat in the ring and try something new. That's what happens a lot with business guys that have mastered one area of society and believe they have something to offer another area of society. But he was intellectually curious and had a burning heart of service. And I left that first meeting and I thought, gosh, I would have done that race for free. I think he's a fabulous person. And I think anytime we have a chance to work for someone that's actually going to change and bend the arc of politics, that's an honor to do that. And he's that kind of guy. He's a conservative He's not pissed off about it. And the hunger that he has to do better each and every day, you either have that or you don't. You either slough off on the issues and just recite talking points, or you intellectually are curious enough to find out why people that you don't agree with have that position and just fundamentally want to understand the 3D piece of politics. And so I pitched, we probably worked 
I don't know, three or four different meetings and long conference calls, just philosophical. And finally, his big hang up to get the deal done was how many days a week I would be in Virginia because I would not done a lot of races in Virginia. And so I spent 123 days in the Marriott across the street for the campaign office the last year. And it was to really build a symmetrical campaign that launched in a convention, which is the purest of pure Republicans, and build a campaign starting from that all the way to election night and the general and have the same consistent messaging. And that takes a lot of work on the front end to do that. And you could tell immediately that he was committed to that. We also didn't want to run a convention and be the nominee just to lose. And so the first thing that he recommended we do, which told me everything I needed to know about him, it was to do a general election survey to understand if Virginia was really as gone as everyone thought that it was gone. And remember, this is December of 20. The Georgia election had not even happened yet. And so we had done a survey then. And I'll tell you one of the first things that I learned in that survey, one of my first takeaways, was that the non-white voters were as or more persuadable than white voters that had formerly been Republicans and had left the party. So we learned a lot in that survey. And Glenn was, from the jump, was a transformational candidate that I was going to be eager to work with. And I learned a lot from him during the process. That's great. Was the convention much of a challenge or was the sheer momentum of your campaign enough to win it? It was a big challenge. We were the focal point of the campaign really from the word go. And I've not been in a campaign like this where we were the news the whole entire way. That's a lot of pressure on a campaign. But everybody took us as being their kind of block to their nomination. We stood in their way. We took that to heart and fashioned a campaign that the most of the people that ever participated before in a convention was 18,000 and 32,000 participated in this one. We registered on our own 18,000 delegates. So we knew that if we let the typical be the typical, we would not be able to be successful. We needed to change the electorate. And so we completely changed the electorate, registered people that never registered to be a delegate before, completely came from a very unconventional approach. And I like it that way. The more difficult it is, I think the less likely it is that my competitors will do the same work. And Glenn was ready to work, ready to change, ready to invest. We didn't outspend everybody. Another candidate spent as much as we did in it. But everybody had a unique approach to their voting block. And we were everybody's second choice, which is kind of a dangerous place to be in a typical election. But with ranked choice voting, I felt good about that. We didn't run any negative ads. We didn't do the typical approach. But eventually, as other people kept attacking, it gave us the chance to really show Glenn's heart. And with our own people that we were bringing to the polls and to the convention ourselves, we were able to bring enough first place votes that we felt really confident. You never know who's going to show up. We registered 18,000. We got about half of them to the polls for the first vote, but we felt pretty confident once we turned it into a ground war that we were going to be okay. So you start out, and one of the things you're really known for is looking carefully at data. Were you surprised early on that Virginia was not as blue as people thought? No, I always thought, so if you take Trump out of the mix, you take his 16 results, you know, it's a five-point state. Take the Trump-Hillary kind of out of it. It's probably a four-point state. It's not Colorado. Everybody would always make the suggestion it's Colorado. It's not a great state for Republicans, for sure, but it's just not that bad. 
And Trump didn't put it in play, didn't campaign there last time. And Biden's kind of the perfect vessel for them. So I never thought it was a 10-point state. I thought it could be a, probably a four or five-point state. And then you take the national kind of averages of the off-year performance and the off-off-year, and we're looking at probably a one or two-point state. So I always thought we'd be down one or two, maybe three. And certainly right after the convention, some surveys came out that had us down outside the margin of error. The RGA had a survey that had us down 11. That was a tough day. But they had the college-educated vote was at 59%, and the highest it had ever been was 52%. So I didn't think those numbers were quite right. But I figured we were going to be in a minus four or five coming out of the convention. Our own polling had us down six. And thankfully, in my mind's eye, our convention was a month before the Democrat election. And that gave us a chance to go on air and start identifying and branding Glenn outside the typical political prism. And we had the resources because Glenn invested $20 million of his own campaign. He spent roughly eight in the primary in the convention phase. And so we spent a lot of money at that time, knowing we'd get out spent at the end, but knowing what attacks would come against us to really spend a lot of time uncomfortably, not talking deep about issues, not talking about anything besides introducing him as a new kind of leader. And I think that really paid dividends. There was never a time in the campaign that Glenn's unfavorables were higher than his favorables. How much time did you spend in that original introduction? May 28th until August 11th. You know, I live in McLean, Virginia, and Chris and I watched it. We thought they were very good, and they set him up as a nice, likable, sincere person in a way that I thought was tremendous to then be able to be in a real campaign with a guy who you knew was going to be very tough. I mean, McAuliffe's a real professional politician, and he was going to do whatever it took to try to win. And he started advertising against us on July 11th, and it was all about Trump and making us the Trump acolyte. It was a tough summer, by the way. We were down and still not advertising, not counterattacking, no negatives, not really even talking deep about issues. And a lot of folks were talking about you know, we were spending too much time on his brand versus the other. But the best antidote for the Trump attack was to make Glenn his own person. And so to me, there wasn't a lot of reason to switch off that message, even though we weren't going to gain a lot. We were building up scar tissue on that attack, which eventually I think proved to be Terry's downfall is that he never really moved off that. He never got to the second punch. He was just that we're a radical Republican. We're a crazy, extreme Republican, whether it be because of our support of Trump or because of our position on abortion or guns or climate change or pick your topic, positioning him as a pretty normal suburban dad who wants to go do the right things, I think that paid off. Do you think McAuliffe had polling that showed him that that would work? Because I thought, frankly, that Terry was a better politician than his campaign. And I thought that the campaign was one of the more inferior products I'd seen in a while. Me too. I think he ran, you know, two of the worst campaigns I've ever seen ran is Terry McAuliffe and Hillary Clinton. When I got into the race, I would have thought that Terry would have been kind of like a Claire McCaskill type to really be a sophisticated, you know, take an issue and wedge it. And he never did that. It seemed like a lazy campaign to me. It seemed like a kind of knockoff 2020 Senate race. Didn't you have the sense that he didn't really take Youngkin seriously till towards the very end? 
after he made the mistake in the debate about whether or not parents should be involved in schools. But prior to that, it was kind of like he was rope-a-doping. Yeah, like he just had one note and he was just going to beat the heck out of it until it bled out. I did think that. I thought it was a pretty woeful effort. I couldn't tell if he had, and I still don't know the answer to this really, but I couldn't tell if he had too many advisors or not enough. <laughs> because on the day before the election, he had 11 commercials up and we had three and he was all over the map at the end just trying anything. But yeah, for the longest time, we kept on looking around thinking, is this all this guy's going to do is try the same thing, you know, 8,000 times. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I do want to say as a citizen voter who was watching the campaign, I thought overall your commercials were very, very good. You know, the thing that he did that surprised me the most, we split up our coalition into obviously persuadable voters, people that we just couldn't get. But listen to this, that you'll love this. He spent about $1.8 million on Hulu, you know, the streaming service. I got to be honest, it was freaking me out a little bit. We ended up spending about $92,000 on it. And when I asked, I said, guys, I cannot be missing something here. So I need to rerun the analytics and come back to me. They reran the analytics, came back to me. And there were 1,982 Hulu subscribers that were persuadable voters. <laughs> now, I still overspent on it. Now, I guess he was trying to get turnout, right? He was trying to lose much more of a Democrat platform. Didn't they do pretty well with turnout? Turnout was up. We all did. I thought he would actually be down on turnout, and he wasn't. No. I wrote the memo on May 21st. I think we got the data back on May 18th. 
we had our first cut on analytics as our turnout was going to be at 2.9. And then after we got the data back from registration numbers, we had a 3.1 and ended up at 3.2. So we always knew that. I think everybody was kind of surprised about the turnout, but you know, you spend 130 million bucks, you're going to get some people turned out. I'm curious, and this may be confidential, so feel free not to answer. But when you go through this, and as I understand it, your initial goal was to win 507,423 likely Republican voters, 400,720 gettable Republicans, and 647,291 swing voters. I mean, at one level, those are slightly phony because you don't actually know if it's 291. Well, we do. Well, how do you? I mean, do you do a scan of every single voter? Virginia's not great because Virginia is not a heavily battleground state, so there's not as much data been purchased over the years. Some states have 50,000 on each voter, but we had about 30,000 pieces of data on every individual voter. And so by the time we do that much survey work, we know pretty close. I mean, there's not a lot of guesswork to be done. Now, where you get your information is different, and whether we can get to you could be different. We did a lot of unique work against Terry in the coal country where he said he wanted to eliminate coal. We were trying to turn people out that were not likely to participate. That's an expensive endeavor, and you've got to find the right issue that matters to them, and coal was a big one there. And so we had a universe of about 34,000, and I'll know in a couple of weeks how many of those actually did turn out, and Glenn's going to require it. Glenn's a Carlisle guy. We will have a big project to put together how many of our targets of all those went through. That's an absolute straight number. The James River, you know, the flooding that goes on and the sewage that's being dumped there, that was a number one issue for them. We did about 21,000 mail pieces, digital targets on that issue alone. When you're trying to get that many votes out of Richmond, I mean, there's just not a lot of things that they agree with the Republican candidate for governor on. It's not made up. These days, you know, with analytics, we have a lot of information on each voter. The other thing that struck me is that, but I thought that bringing in a series of national politicians, whether it was Kamala Harris or Obama or other folks who had national reputations, but they weren't Virginians, and it was overwhelmingly oriented towards either very, very liberal whites or to the black community, to what extent did that actually seal McAuliffe off from the voters that he might have tried to get? Well, it completely turned him into a turnout-only vessel. He advocated any ability to win any crossovers. And I think that everybody has a different philosophy about whether it's turnout or whether it's you know a centrist appeal. I believe you can do both. But I'll give you a stat that you'll like. Stacey Abrams came in for Souls to the Pole in Hampton Roads. We went the next day to see how many people turned out that day. And 394 turned out that day. Now, they didn't have Sunday voting the year before, so we can't measure it apples to apples. But the Monday, the year before, 1,548 had voted. Barack Obama went to Richmond on a Sunday, and they had a rally. 694 people voted that day. But after the rally, they encouraged everybody to go across the street and vote at the early voting center, and one person voted. One so I think that would have been better for him if he would have actually had an operation that would take those people and actually go vote them afterwards. I have this philosophy about companies. Our company is a 3rd of July and a 5th of July company. And the 4th of July will come. And the same thing goes for campaigns. The 3rd of July means we're going to prepare. We're going to invite. We're going to 
you know, build the data so we can have everything in order. Fourth of July, you slide off fireworks and everybody looks good on Fourth of July. But then the fifth of July is the follow up and the follow through and making sure everybody had a good time and do the measurements afterwards. We spent $7.1 million on early voting. And that's not a, I mean, you, know, you want to talk about a real number and a real painful number. There's a lot of people saying, I want to vote early, but I don't know if I trust it. And so we spent real money and real resources because one of the reasons was, is because we didn't want a whole month long of stories about how the Democrats were kicking our tail in early vote because an untold story about polling and the way this pundit polling works is there's a poll coming out every few days anymore. And if people think that their candidate's going to lose, it starts to impact turnout. And 38% of our voters thought we were going to lose on Labor Day. And we knew if we went through a whole raft of stories saying that we're getting our tails kicked in early vote, that that was going to just start to become a reoccurring problem. So we spent a lot of money getting, we call them Republicans in the bank votes to participate because studies show three and a half percent of people that will tell you all the way through the election that they're going to vote on election day, don't vote. And Virginia has 45 days, which is a ridiculous amount of days. But they have 45 days to early vote. So we just spent a bunch of money getting those people to vote early. And we were beating those numbers. We got 46% of the early vote. You know, we got beat 54, 46, which is a huge number. That's only because of the investment we made. And that's a huge shift from what had been traditionally the Republican approach, which was to get killed in the early voting, but then have a massive election day turnout. The other thing I am told that you guys did is that you were able to get the absentees and the mail-in ballots counted first so they couldn't then turn and manufacture the number of extra votes they needed if they began to fall short. There was a lot of pressure that was built upon that not being the case anymore, and I think we had a hand in that, but that's a governmental decision. There's plenty of things I'll take credit for. I don't know if I can take credit for all of that, but certainly there's pressure that We've all seen it a thousand times, right, where they just walk in and that's the last votes to drop and you have no idea. Arlington City was one of the first ones. We knew at 738. At 738, I told Glenn that he was going to win. And I said, I don't know what it's going to be. I think you're going to hang a 50 on him, but you're going to have people showing you screenshots that you won. So you ought to go down and do your lap right now because I don't want you to be declared when you're just kind of working the circuit downstairs. And we knew it because Arlington City was going to be a really rough spot for us. And they dropped their votes early. And I think we got 28 percent and we could survive at 26. And so we knew right then that we were going to be okay. But is that a technique that next year around the country, we should have a pretty uniform effort to say we want to see the absentees and the mail-ins early? We have to push for it. They have to start counting before they cannot start on election night. And we have enough Republicans in enough positions, typically bipartisan boards with a edge to the Democrats, of course, that we should absolutely push for that. And there's no reason not to. Now, the other thing I want to ask you, you indicated in your story in the Washington Post, you see inflation and the economic challenges as the great driver of the next year. At the same time, you did mention in the next paragraph that the way that the school board education radical values thing played out became a living part of the campaign. Should candidates be prepared to work both on the economic and the education side, in your judgment? I'll answer it this way. It's the right question from the takeaway for next cycle. There was a lot of pressure built to, quote unquote, nationalize the race and run ads against Biden and Pelosi and AOC and all that. We rejected that all the way through because I believe you get the benefit of that anyway. 
I don't believe you have to run an ad against Biden to get the benefit of his approval. And his approval rates were always better than Terry's numbers. But what has happened with the cost of living, and you can chalk it up to inflation or chalk it up to supply chain, whatever you want to chalk it up to, but the cost of living, people ascribe that impact on their daily life to Democrat leaders, both at the state level and the federal level. And for us, and you see it now, I mean, everybody's starting to kind of get on the train now. I don't think it's because of us, although I think it is because of Virginia to a degree, but also because people are polling now because we're closer to the election cycle. But cost of living is is through the roof, and it wasn't this time last year. And there's one difference between last year and this year, and that's who's in charge. And they ascribe that rightfully, in my opinion. But even if it's not rightful, even if it's just a bad time for them, you know, the bad time to be in charge, the voters understand this, and they know that there's something different. And every single piece of their life is more expensive than it was. And so cost of living was early on. When they say jobs in the economy... That means something different in each state. And so I would encourage people to understand exactly what that means. But in Virginia, at least, and and a huge swath of America, that simply means cost of living. And they might say inflation, but I think even that excuses it a little bit. I would actually make it cost of living. But then that's not really enough. I mean, that's part of it. That's an economic message. But the other kind of cultural message of schools, even if you don't have children, but particularly if you do, the cultural message that our country is kind of getting away from us a little bit. And that message and the message driven through, and Terry hung a bow on it for us, but that we were actually going through all throughout the course of the campaign is not just critical race theory, which absolutely was part of it, but the lack of opportunity for school choice, which is the dumbing down of academic standards and literally not teaching advanced math and science any longer, removing school resource officers, making it less safe of all the different things that are happening in the schools, particularly in Northern Virginia, but even school choice in Richmond and even school resource officers at Hampton Roads and even what they're teaching to our kids across the Commonwealth, that's a cultural issue. And that cultural issue is a stand-in for the cultural fights that we feel like we're fighting and under assault every single day. And so when you marry economic issues with a cultural you know, protection of our kids issue is a powerful, powerful combo. And I think if used properly, I think it will allow Republicans to have historic wins because I don't believe the Democrats can or have the stamina or the strength to fight back on either one. I don't think they can change their economic platform. And I believe they are doing precisely what they want to do on the cultural. Now, the one last big thing, you also had the most diverse Republican ticket I can remember with a Jamaican-born American citizen who served in the Marine Corps, the first black female to become lieutenant governor, and the son of Cuban refugees as the first Latino attorney general in Virginia history. To what extent was it, do you think, electorally helpful to have a ticket that was that diverse? Oh, well, it's big time because, one, it eliminated any ability for the Democrats to attack Glenn over the party of the old white guy. And so because we were bringing something dynamic and fresh, we didn't have those goals, by the way, in the pre-convention phase. We didn't know who the nominees were going to be. But when we had that ticket and we sat down, because you run as a ticket in Virginia, there's many ways to run as a ticket. One is to do a conference call once a week and say, hey, we're going here. Where are you going? Another way is to actually embed and have a sophisticated messaging and narrative campaign structure. And we went with the latter and Glenn and Jason and Winsome 
I mean, we campaigned together as a ticket. We split messaging. We did everything that we could together because we knew that was a dynamic solution for what the modern party needs to you know, embrace. And there's something in it for everyone. And Glenn's, you know, broad based campaign that was leave no voter behind and take no vote for granted just was embodied with the construct of the ticket. So it was a perfect storm for that. Well, I want to commend you. I found the race exactly what it should have been. I watched it, as you know, very carefully. I thought that Glenn Youngkin did an amazing job. And I think it was historic. I think Youngkin has a very long career ahead of him as a national leader. We happen to be at a moment in time where this particular victory is going to send signals that will be substantial for 2022 and 2024. And Jeff, I want to thank you for taking time out of your family vacation. I am, as you know, a big fan of the work you've done. And I want our listeners to know we're going to have more information about political advertising and about your company, Axiom Strategies, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Thank you, dude. Thank you to my guest, Jeff Rowe. You can learn more about political advertising and the winning Youngkin campaign on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.